You're listening to The Parting Shot with H. Allen Scott. There are two types of people, those who watch the Super Bowl for the football and those who watch the Super Bowl for everything but the football. I fall into the latter group. Honestly, I couldn't even tell you who's playing in the game besides Taylor Swift's boyfriend. What's his name again? Ketchup something? I don't know. So going into the Super Bowl weekend, I want to give you a bit of a survival guide for how you can get through the sports thing if sports just aren't your thing. One thing you can do is just avoid it altogether and go watch a movie, perhaps the one that my guest, Sophie von Hasselberg, is in, Love Reconsidered. You'll hear more about that in our chat in just a little bit. But before we get to that, let's start at the beginning, shall we? You're at your party and everyone is talking about whatever the team's playing or sports talk and you're just thoroughly confused. Well, your moment to shine will come when Post Malone, Andrew Day, and Reba McIntyre walk out onto the field right before the game begins. Malone will be performing America the Beautiful, Day will be performing Lift Every Voice and Sing, and McIntyre will be singing the National Anthem. Now, when McIntyre starts the National Anthem, this is a great opportunity to bring up Whitney Houston. You could probably say something like, no disrespect to Reba, but nobody will ever compare to Whitney Houston's version of the National Anthem at the Super Bowl. Some annoying person at the party will probably bring up that time Lady Gaga did it or even Chris Stapleton last year. But hold firm. This is your moment, not theirs. If all else fails, just do what I do and break out into singing your own version of Reba McIntyre's song, I'm a Survivor. You know about the mom that works too hard. People will think you're crazy, but eventually they'll start singing along and hopefully discuss McIntyre's wildly underrated sitcom Reba. I love it. You should stream it on Hulu. Now, Once the game starts, you're going to be bored. Don't worry. This is natural. I suggest making your way to the snack table. It's always the safest activity, and everyone knows that calories don't count on Super Bowl Sunday. It's a nationally recognized fact. But when those commercials start, spit that chip covered in queso dip out of your mouth because your part of the Super Bowl is about to begin. Companies shell out an estimated $7 million for just one 30-second spot during this big game, which is absurd, but who cares because the Super Bowl is about you right now. For example, early in the game, mention something about Kate McKinnon doing a Hellman's Mayonnaise commercial or Tina Fey in her Booking.com commercial. That way, when it comes on, you can yell across the room, Hey, Debra, because everyone has a friend named Debra. That commercial I told you about is on. Now, This way, you seem like you're in the know and you're engaged in the game, but it also lets you avoid the actual game. And Deborah, everyone hates Deborah, and she brought vegetables to the party. Like, screw you, Deborah. Other commercials to look out for include the Uber Eats one featuring Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer, all those beer commercials, because they always seem to turn it out. That Oreo one featuring Kris Jenner looking like an AI version of herself. I mean, it might as well be an ad for Facetune or something. And Pringles has one with Chris Pratt, Because that's what the world needs more of is just more Chris Pratt on television or in movies. I'm being sarcastic. I just can't stand Chris Pratt. I don't know what it is. But beyond the national anthem and the commercials, your real moment comes during the halftime show. This is the part of the Super Bowl Sunday where every person who doesn't know a lick about football steps into the spotlight and says, hold my warm beer. I've got this. The headliner for the Apple Music Super Bowl halftime show this year is Usher. The single will perform a whopping 15 minutes, which is longer than most halftime shows. Rihanna only got 13 last year, which just feels offensive. 
Usher mentioned hasn't mentioned any special guests yet, but it's safe to expect some surprises during his performance. Now, no shade to Usher. He can fill 15 minutes, but it's the Super Bowl halftime show, and I better see lots of famous stars on that stage. Personally, I kind of hope that Justin Bieber will come out, not because I like Justin Bieber, but because he's kind of been in hiding for the past year, and that would just be fun weird. Oh, and I also would love if <laughs> this isn't going to happen, but what if Reba came out and Usher and Reba did a duet? I mean, this is wishful thinking, but I would actually die if that happened. Now, he hasn't mentioned what songs he'll be performing either, but you can expect all the hits, you know, like the yeah one. I don't know. I can't think of any of Usher songs, to be honest. I really just want Reba to do the halftime show. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, Now, even if you don't care about Usher, the halftime show is a great moment to open up the conversation to other past halftime show performances. You know, you could be shady and say something like Beyonce's halftime show wasn't all that great. It will be a lie because everyone knows Beyonce's halftime show was the best in Super Bowl history, but it will make for a lively Super Bowl party conversation. Other halftime performances that you could bring up include Madonna's, Lady Gaga's, maybe Bruno Mars, or my favorite, Diana Ross at the 1996 Super Bowl, where she left her performance in a helicopter. It was very weird to watch, but it was fun. Okay, now it's time for the scary news. Once the halftime show is over, this, dear listener, will be the hardest part of the night. While football fans look forward to this moment because it signals the end of the game and that big winner that's coming for whoever is playing in this game, for us non-Super Bowl people, everything we have to look forward to is basically over by this point. The performances are done, the good commercials have come and gone, and let's be real, the queso dip is cold. What are you to do? Well, this is when you make it all about Taylor Swift. As the rest of the world knows, Taylor Swift will have flown from her concert in Japan all the way to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl to see her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, see, I know his name isn't ketchup or whatever, play in the Super Bowl. So while the rest of your party is intensely focused on whatever team is going to win, you could be like, I bet Taylor's tired. That's a long flight from Japan. <laughs> this is when Deborah will probably bring up wearing compression socks on long flights or something. We get it, Deborah. You're boring. Or if you really want to make it an interesting party, you could do what I would do and confidently say Taylor Swift is overrated. It might be a fib, but I guarantee you it will inspire a heated conversation. Now, after telling you all of this, I fear I may have provided you with less of a Super Bowl survival guide and more of a plan to make your Super Bowl party all about you. Oh, well, at least you'll have that queso dip, right? (laughs) But like I said at the beginning, if the Super Bowl isn't your thing, Love Reconsidered should be your thing this weekend. Today, I'm chatting with the star of the film, Sophie von Hasselberg. We're chatting about the lack of rom-coms out there right now and why we love them and some of our favorite rom-coms. I mean, we go deep into rom-com talk and it's actually a lot of fun we also talked about how there's an epidemic of people wanting to be famous on social media and how that's sort of influencing how we as sort of millennials approach work and life and all of those things a really fascinating part of the conversation we also talked about how sophie carves out her own path as an actor and a creative person when journalists like me always ask her about her famous mom bet midler so Go on and grab a snack because I will be right back with the very lovely and fantastic Sophie von Hasselberg. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Sophie, so fun to have you as a new friend. I do love this. <laughs> we had so much fun at the screening the other night. The film is fantastic. I wanted to know, because I always love, I mean, I can describe the film, but I always love seeing like how the lead of a film sort of describes not only your role, but also just the film in general. So how would you describe this film to people? It's very funny that that's your first question because before going on the Today Show, I was having an actual like panic the night before of like, what if they ask me what the film is about and I can't give them the perfect log line? <laughs> that's like when, that's the stump question they ask presidential candidates. Like, why are you running for president? And if they don't have an answer, like you're screwed. This is kind of your job here. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I said that to the guy who was doing my hair before going on and he was like, you don't know what your film is about. I was like, that's not the problem. It's how to put it into a concise explanation. Yeah. But let me try. Okay. Here it goes. So, Ruby is a down on her luck New Yorker who's convinced that she's supposed to become a quote unquote girl boss. And her life is suddenly transferred to the Hamptons when she gets an opportunity to run a consignment shop. And while running this consignment shop, she catches glimpses of the lives of many of her customers, causing her to reframe what she really wants out of life and who she really is. Mm, and mayhem ensues in a lot of those vignettes. I mean, exactly. what? Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm going to get to that first. But first, I want to focus on Ruby. So, Ruby, one of the things that uh, we talked a little bit about at the screening the other night, but I want to talk to you more about here is that. The sense of sort of the perpetual adolescence with people, not so much in their 20s, but in the 30s. I mean, there's that whole trend of like the economy's, you know, fucked up. So like people are living with their fam- with their parents up well into their 20s. But it feels like in our 30s, I'm not living with my parents anymore. But I do f- I do kind of feel like I'm still sort of stuck in that 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 the bouncy period of of the early 20s adolescence you know what i mean it just feels like it's prolonged into the 30s and ruby kind of personifies that do you do you see that oh she absolutely personifies that and i think that's something i mean i certainly empathize with that you know i think there's a very funny generational piece that you're really bringing up right now which is like for our parents most of them started working in their early 20s many people started working in their early 20s and stayed at the same job for 40 years you know those kinds of things are that 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 path seems to kind of be over in a way. I mean, my friends, it's rare for them to stay at a job for more than five years. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the duration has really shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is this interesting prolonged adolescence. I was talking to my parents about college the other day about like, you know, going to college and feeling very much that actually it was less a period of learning and more a period of just trying to grow up in some way mm-hmm. um you know it's like 18 now is different than it was in the 50s 60s 70s oh my god um, yes so i think ruby is certainly emblematic of this and she's also emblematic of this idea of like like i said the girl boss right i need to be a boss bitch i need to be an entrepreneur i need to 
you know, I think like the Facebook of all of these things, the tech of it, the these young entrepreneurs shifted the conversation to being, you know, you need to be your own boss. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, I don't know, it's a very contemporary, but perhaps not, um, I don't know, I don't know how much people can keep doing that in the long term. I'm getting yeah. lost in a million threads here, no. but I like you understand. What I I'm totally saying. understand. I mean, I'm thinking of it in a way like, I mean, you know, no shade or anything. I love them. But it's sort of like the Beyonce, Taylor Swift of it all. Like, not everyone can be the boss Beyonce, Taylor Swift. Some of us have to be the recluse Billie Eilish. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have a lot of friends who went and got their MBAs. Mm -hmm. And after, it felt like everybody thought that their destiny then was that they had to start a company. That like the MBA would be a total waste of time if they weren't starting their own thing. And maybe not everybody is meant to start their own thing, right? (laughs) Like sometimes it's okay to just work for someone else and go home and live your life. I mean, it's a, it's, but I think, yeah, yeah. The social media of it all, you know, now we're all content creators. Like (laughs) it's all screwed up. (laughs) That's what I was telling someone. I was telling a friend back home because she was responding. I mean, she's, she's a, she's doing the, the, the best work ever. She is a mother. She is is raising children into this world and to be good human beings. And she was like, I don't know. I feel like I should be doing more on Instagram. And it's like, nah, girl, you're doing a lot right now. You don't need to be an influencer. You're good. I mean, you yeah. can, if you want, no, no, no problem there. But like, you don't need to be like, everyone feels like they have to, I think matter in a public way now, you know? Yes. Which is so interesting because we all have this opportunity now to have an audience, whether we're in entertainment or totally not in entertainment. Like Mm -hmm. there's this opportunity to have an external eye and to connect with the quote unquote public. And so it's this idea that like, even if you're not interested in, in being an actor or a, a public facing figure, you still have to have some sort of a quote unquote presence. Mm-hmm. Like it's so fascinating. It's so oh wild. God. And also I was telling her too, I was like, there's a reason why I do what I do is because I'm kind of fucked up and don't relate to anyone in person. And that's why I'm a creative person. And I put those things out there. <laughs> You're normal. It's cool to be normal. I can't be normal. That's why I do what I do. You know, it's, I, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, you're right. The internet and social media is kind of like skewed that whole presence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and Ruby is definitely that Ruby's definitely that. I mean, Ruby, but Ruby gets there. I mean, along the way, Ruby does figure out that like, maybe she should just be Ruby, you know? Exactly. And I also think there's a funny thing with Ruby where it's like, she does sort of have a personality where like, she should be running a quirky consignment store where she is the boss, right? It's yeah. like her her sense of herself as a as a girl boss is actually not misguided, mm-hmm. but I think her idea of like what that will look like, right? That it's supposed to look like a Gwyneth. It's supposed to be Goop. It's supposed to be the hot rich boyfriend mm-hmm. and sort of learning that those pieces that she imagined were wrong, even though her drive was actually pointing her yeah. in the right direction, if well, that makes sense. Yeah, and she can also matter and be famous with... 20 people rather than all these other people that she's trying to impress or be the Gwyneth in the world or whatever it is. It's like, there's a way that you can be an influencer without having to be annoying about it. Like have that consignment shop girl, be famous for the core, be the girl with the quirky shop on the corner. You know what I mean? Like that's a vibe. Right. Or also like, you know, you can have influence without being an influencer, right? Like you can have real connection with the wonderful people in your life without yeah. putting it all over social media. But. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and the other thing too, that it sort of hits me with this is that it is 
two things. It's particularly, especially in, in the beginning of the film. I mean, as a Jewish person, I definitely was like Judy Gold and like the the oh sort God. of the I Jewish. So I know, right? She's incredible. I mean, she's done the podcast before. She's I've known her for years. She's like the best. But there is this sort of like. Um, I don't know, Jewish sensibility in a way, and that's probably the New York of it all, but there is this Jewish sensibility in the film that sort of comes through in the beginning. Did that stand out to you at all? You know, it's funny, reading the script, it did not stand yeah. out to me. Of course, the Judy scene, even on the page, stood out to me as like classic Jewish mother stuff. Yeah. But then I met Ariel, whose life it's based on. Ariel Heller-Silverstone, she wrote it. She also helped produce it with S.J. Loco. Um, and once I met Ari, I was like, Oh, okay, okay, okay. I get who Ruby is. Now I'm seeing the Long Island Jewish of it all. Even though I grew up in Connecticut, it's very like rooted in that particular Long Island Jewish vibe. Um, and then I started to kind of put the puzzle pieces together of also like, you know, she's kind of dating this waspy guy. Like she's idolizing Gwyneth. Like the, that she's sort of the pieces, the, the people who she, who she imagines her life to be are these sort of very um, waspy mm-hmm blue blood types and yet ruby is this yeah like you know classic jewish jewish mother Mm -hmm. bagel eating whatever you want to say yeah um and i loved that because i also think part of that part of her journey is actually really embracing that side of herself and cutting off the part of herself that's trying to be this thing that she'll never be yeah um so I do think it's interesting because in we did a Q&A and Judy Gold was moderating the Q&A and she was asking about the Jewishness of this story. And I think it does come through. And I think, you know, I mean, whether you want to be like, well, she's in the schmata business, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can, yeah. there are many strands of it that you can relate. But most of all, I think it's actually like Ari's sense of humor mm-hmm. um, and just kind of her way of being in the world. Yeah. Um makes it yeah a very like that it's that she becomes a classic jewish protagonist well and also too i mean the hamptons of it all which i mean if anyone's ever spent any time in new york the there's the dream of coming going to the hamptons and having that hamptons life and then there's also the reality of a hamptons life and the jewishness of it i think actually fits really well into the hamptons of it because Hamptons in itself is not necessarily very jewish and so to be a jewish person trying to be successful in the hamptons is kind of an anomaly in a lot of ways because it you know there's there's that there's that belief that like oh you stick to new york or you stick to sort of the sensibility of the apartment building or all those things and it's only the rich people who are allowed out here or the hoity-toity people who are allowed out here in the hamptons and there is that right. dynamic there in a way yeah well and i mean there are still i believe there are there's still one or two clubs that like sort of surreptitiously don't allow jews Boy. which is absolutely insane and i think obviously jewish people are not the only people who i think are not yes have we're not traditionally welcomed in the hamptons but i do think that there is that it certainly plays into that and i and i i think that the you know the antagonist is the antagonist in the film whose name is eden is supposed to really be emblematic of that part of the hamptons um and this sort of like well you belong here as long as you're willing to you know be my lackey yeah um yeah and yeah but you know it's it's interesting particularly in this time it's also like i maybe didn't think very much about the jewishness of the story when we were filming it and then in retrospect and particularly of course with what's going on in the world right now suddenly like there's a little bit of a different lens on it in actually not necessarily even a political way no, not but at simply all. In like a, in this in a social way i think like yeah the story has maybe changed a little bit yeah i mean just the the sense of i mean i've talked about this a lot with you know some friends of mine who are 
you know, influencer Jews, if you will. They, they, or at least they're outwardly like Jay Cohen, for example, who's a, he's a cook and he does a lot of really great things, but he's also very Jewish online and sort of being the uh, publicly Jewish in a way and sort of telling Jewish stories without it being political at all, but like just being Jewish in a movie can be sometimes political just because you're Jewish, you know? And, and uh, that yeah. stood out to me in this film a little bit. Uh, I love, I loved it. I loved it, but I also love the rom-com of it all. And we talked a little bit about rom-coms at the screening, but I love that this, I mean, to, we rom-coms in general have been hurting these past couple of years in film because of the Marvel of it all and everything. And there is sort of a lack of, the sensibility of rom-coms in cinema right now. Do you think rom-coms are coming back? And why do you think they ever went away? <laughs> I really do think they're coming back. In every interview I've done for this, people have been like, oh my God, I'm so relieved to have a rom-com because I've been missing the genre, which is not to say that there have been zero rom-coms, but they've been, they, they, yeah, they sort of disappeared. Also like the idea of the A-list rom-com. I mean, Julia Roberts and yep. George Clooney doing that rom-com yep. a couple of years ago or last year was like, oh my God, finally we have another, mm-hmm. you know, A-listers are doing these films again. Um, I grew up on them, of course. I think they are the greatest genre. It's like they, you know, they're my comfort food. Mm-hmm. Um, they're my comfort food. They're also my not comfort food. They're basically like my anytime food. I just love them. Yeah. Um I don't know why they went away. It's such a good question. I mean, I think right now they are coming back because the world is, it's amazing how the world just went from like a small dumpster fire to a medium dumpster fire. And now it's just like, wow, holy cannoli. We are just really living in this. So I think there is just a, like I just said, the comfort food aspect of it, of like people really wanting stories that feel hopeful, Mm -hmm. that are actually about human connection, that are about love and beauty and kind of wholesomeness in a way, even though some of the storylines in this film are so unwholesome, like at the same time, it's sort of really about the goodness of people um, and the desire for connection. And so I think there's a real hunger for the genre. And I think it's really fun that a lot of indies or that a lot of rom-coms are now being produced as indies. So some of them are not necessarily that kind of mass Marvel style appeal. And yet, you know, it's a little bit more quirky. I mean, I would not consider myself to be a traditional rom-com lead, yeah. but here I am getting to be the lead in a rom-com. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, the genre is coming back, but maybe in a more contemporary way. Yeah. I mean, rom-coms in general, one of the things that I love about rom-coms, at least my favorite rom-coms is that, they are kind of screwy in that, like, they shouldn't make sense. Like, My Best Friend's Wedding is a completely fucked up story about an evil person <laughs> who is trying to ruin a very expensive wedding. You know, I mean, it's like it's if you if you twist it, it could be a true crime story in a way. And uh, 100%. yeah. And so I want to know, like, what what are your go to rom coms? Well, you just named one, My Best yeah. Friend's Wedding, I without can't. a doubt. Um, the, actually the woman next to me on my plane out to LA was watching my best friend's wedding and my TV was really glitchy and I was just sort of surreptitiously like trying to watch over. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh yeah, this is the, this is the part where she goes into the office and she, yeah, um, yeah. it's okay. So that Notting Hill, oh, absolutely. Notting Hill. Then some of my favorites are like, I kind of question whether they're actually rom-coms or whether they're too hard funny to be in the rom-com genre, like a clueless, some like it hot. Mm, mm. Some of these that are like more comedy, comedy, like com-rom, yeah. not rom-com. Yeah. Some might say. Yes, I see that. 
Um, what are my other favorites? Oh, The Wedding Singer. Oh, The Wedding Singer. I mean, you can't get better than The Wedding Singer. I mean, it's just, J-Lo really sort of like took the rom-com and was just like, I'm going to J-Lo-fy it. And she has in so many films. Yeah. Made in Um, Manhattan. Made in Manhattan. Yeah. Which now I'm like, is that still PC? I don't, I don't think know. so. I don't think so, but still. <laughs> yes. Um, what was that other one? Okay, she gets her heel stuck in the in the manhole. Oh, oh, in the manhole. Wait, I thought I'm thinking um, I'm thinking pretty woman. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, uh the t- uh, how to lose a guy in ten days? Is that it? No, no the San no, Francisco Parker one, failure to launch. No. No, no, no. It's oh. J Lo gets her heel stuck in a manhole. Oh my god, what is that I'm one? Like, the thing is coming down at her, the, the dumpster. Speaking yes, of dumpsters. Yes. Coming. Anyway, I okay, don't so remember, one, but it's one, one of the J- mainly J-Lo ones. Yes. <laughs> How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I, I love Kate Hudson. Yeah. I, she lights up the screen for me. People go to How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and I always am like, okay, yes, I understand. Great film. However, have they experienced Raising Helen? It's hard to find. You can't even find it on DVD these days. Like, it, you can't find I, don't know what that is. It is so good. It is Joan Cusack and um, and I think I forget who her other sister is, but one of her sisters dies, and then she raised and Helen is this crazy girl in New York working in fashion, but she can't keep her job, and she's just wacky, <laughs> wacky. And then all of a sudden, she has to adopt, or she uh, her sister leaves her children to her, and she has to raise these kids and she doesn't know what she's doing and then of course over the film she falls in love with john corbett yeah the sex and city guy john corbett is that his name i don't know anyway it's so bad good in a wonderful delightful hug of a way and joan cusack and if joan cusack is a friend i mean runaway bride joan cusack like i mean there are just joan cusack working girl joan cusack i mean to me joan cusack is really adam's family yes yes an unconventional rom-com in a way in its own way, yeah. I was thinking about Gomez and Morticia the other day, yeah. and I mean, I really don't like the overuse of the word iconic, but wow, now that's an iconic couple. <laughs> it really, it truly, it truly is. <laughs> to me, they are the only A-list couple. I mean, oh my God, what a movie. Also, another rom-com I want to throw into the mix, and you know that you love rom-coms if you are in a city that you know a rom-com was filmed, and you have to go to a particular area of that city because of one building in a dumb movie that you're obsessed with, Bridget Jones's Diary. Oh I, my God. I went to the Borough Market like food thing over in London just so that I could see the outside of Bridget Jones. I, I didn't even care about the food. I just wanted to see the apartment. That's all I wanted to see. That to me may be the most, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm revising all of my favorites. Okay, oh shit, we didn't even talk about When Harry Met Sally. Oh. But I, to me, Bridget Jones, first of all, I'm sorry, Hugh Grant in that movie. I'm Everything. like, I don't know why she ends up with Colin Firth. Like, who cares? I'm the I'm Hugh Grant. Yeah. When he comes out of the water and he has those aviators oh, on, no, lip cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I love that you love Hugh Grant because in this in this new friendship that we're building right now, I have to admit, I I'm fully Colin Firth here. I need the security of Colin Firth. I just, I think that I like you very much. I mean, I just just the way you want. It just it. That's all I want someone to tell me that I'm I'm fucked up, but I'm fine. You know what I mean? Just the way I am. Like <laughs> that's all I want. <laughs> You're right. Listen, is he obviously the better choice? Of course, but there's yeah. just something about that CAD. Yes. You know. Floppy hair, the oh. floppy hair, the Hugh oh. Grant flop. Oh my lord! Uh, well, but I'm also going to throw in here: Colin Firth um, is still looking pretty good, like Bridget Jones's Diaries. Whereas 
I'm not saying Hugh Grant doesn't look like Hugh Grant then. I'm just saying Hugh Grant has 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 kind of gotten a little angry in his recent films. So But I will say his acting is incredible. Incredible. Did you see a note wait, not notes on a scandal, a very English scandal? So good. Oh my god. How Hugh Grant has never been nominated for an Oscar is insane to me. But I think it's so exciting. And I feel like Matthew McConaughey kind of did a similar thing, which is like starting out as a rom-com, very classically attractive, sort of like doing their thing. And then wham, turns out they're incredible actors, which was not to say that they weren't doing great work in those, but you know, it was a very particular style. Mm -hmm. And now they're like in really character actor mode. And it's so cool to watch. I mean, it's so exciting to be like, oh, this person's range that maybe Hollywood wasn't willing to let them show suddenly is breaking through and it's I mean look at awesome. about a boy about a boy is an incredible yeah. film also kind of a rom-com but a male-led rom-com incredible yeah. film I mean just so good another one that's sort of a rom and I don't know if you like classic films but there's like uh there's I do I mean the apartment is kind of a rom-com but in a very dark way because the premise I mean it's, it's a funny film but the premise is that she is trying to end her life and and it's it's wildly funny but yet also incredibly dark it's a wonder i mean it's the all to me it's the ultimate rom-com well it's i mean it's an incredibly made film and the actors i mean anything jack lemon is in which speaking of that my love interest in this movie is jack lemon's grandson oh i did not know that oh my god yes john lemon is jack lemon's grandson and actually sydney lemon we went to drama school together and she's also an actor and they're both totally wonderful and brilliant I am a Jack Lemmon super fan. So oh I'm like, God. a hot with my, my favorite movie since I was four years old. Like, yes. I think his work is so unbelievable. Yes. And in the apartment, it's such a, you know, he's both this kind of happy go lucky guy and simultaneously has so much pathos, yeah. pathos, however one's supposed to pronounce that. <laughs> and yeah, God, he's good. Oh, wow. We and need to text more about Jack Lemmon because I have so many things. I mean, there are so many. The deep cut of Jack Lemmon in the 1970s and the films that he did before he became sort of the elder statesman actor are underrated, even though he won an Oscar during that period, underrated, need to be more respected. I mean, there are just some films that Jack, Jack Lemmon is a serious actor because I feel like when we were growing up, because we're the same age, when we were growing up, Jack Lemmon was a comedian. He's a comedy actor yeah. and his early films are also very comedy driven, but in the seventies he went dark and it is good. What did he win an Oscar for? Uh, he won the Oscar for, I think it's called save the tiger. There's, and there's where he's having like a breakdown or something. He was an alcoholic and there's another one. I mean, there are so many great dramatic set 1970s Jack Lemon films that are definitely worth watching that when I, as a young kid, I loved grumpy old men and I was obsessed. I was like, who is this actor? And of course the geek in me was like, I'm going to go to blockbuster and get all these movies by Jack Lemon. Yeah. And I did. And I was a 12 year old, very shocked by watching a, 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 a drunk, you know, fall apart in his life film, but it was good. <laughs> but I think that's also, you know, his career is also sort of touches on the fact that, often these comedic actors are then capable of like, yes. you know, you think of them as being comedic actors. Suddenly you see them in a serious role and you're like, Oh my God, I am so yeah. blown away by that. And that's just kind of the surprise of like, Oh, right. You can do more than one thing. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. fact that we still, that we continue to be surprised by that as a fact. Well, the Jim Carrey <laughs> of it all, how Jim Carrey has never been nominated for an Oscar Truman show, uh, you know, man on the moon. Like there are just so many, I mean, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Like how did that not happen for him? And it's so talented. It shows you what we do to people people who are in films like rom-coms or comedies where we pigeonhole them into sort of this genre that is marketable. Yes. And people want to go yeah. see them, but 
they don't get taken seriously in a lot of respects. I think it's changing. Yeah. I think it's kind of changing. I mean, you look at a film like Everything Everywhere all at once and you see films that like are unique and different or even a film like this, you know, where it's it's unique and it's different and it's a different vibe. But yet maybe people can look at it in a different way and see it for the art that it is, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with this film, with Love Reconsidered, it also helps that it is an indie. So yeah. I think it feels a little like there's a lot of room for quirkiness, which makes it feel less like it would pigeonhole mm-hmm. any of the actors. But I, yeah, I know we should stop keeping our actors in boxes. Exactly. Well, one thing that I do want to, speaking of indie and artistic and kind of out there, I do need to ask you about Give Me Pity because I watched a little bit of it. I had not seen it before I met you, which shocked me. And I was shocked that I hadn't seen it because that is fully up my alley that is a it's a it's a it's a fever dream of of just wonder and beauty and like craziness what a how can people go find that i think they can just buy it now probably but like also b how did that come about because it's wild yes it's wild it's i mean I'm really relishing getting to talk about Love Reconsidered because I'm so happy to talk about rom-coms and also because it is actually giving me like a little bit of a forum to talk about Give Me Pity. And I got to shoot these movies almost back to back. Wow. And Give Me Pity is directed by Amanda Kramer, who's a very cool, pretty avant-garde filmmaker. It's interesting because I sort of think she straddles like avant-garde and commerciality in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. And... What was your first question? Totally just well, forgot. How, I mean, first, how can people see it now, which I think they can just yes. buy it or rent it, but also how did it come about? Like, what right. is it about? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I could just uh, <laughs> go for the next 30 minutes talking about this by myself. Um, it so it's available Apple, Amazon, the usual things. It's also available on VHS, which oh. is pretty cool through retro release video, and it's available that. on TV through Vinegar Syndrome. So it's a very kind of like filmy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's available anywhere that you can rent or purchase films. And I believe we're hopefully coming out on a platform a little bit later this year, but I shouldn't say anything or jinx it. Yeah. Um, but that came about. So Amanda Kramer contacted a friend of mine, Nicole Delaney, who's also an awesome filmmaker and writer, um, and said, I have an idea for a project. And I saw Sophie von Hasselberg in a short that you guys made together. Would you be willing to connect me to her? And Nicole asked me if she could give me give her my info. And I said, yes, sort of expecting, I don't know, with these kinds of things, I usually don't expect the caliber to be particularly high. You know, yeah. I'm like, oh, straight off. We're like, that's pretty rare for me. Yeah. So expecting it to sort of be like newbie filmmaker who's never done anything like, and I would have said yes as well. Yeah. And then I started looking up Amanda and was, I mean, just totally agog at the work that she's done. And she sent me the script. And I was like, this is the craziest thing, because to me, this is the most frightening thing I could ever do because it's singing, it's dancing. It's, I mean, basically 90 minutes of, of one character. Mm -hmm. Um, So the premise of the film, for those of you listening who haven't seen it is Sissy St. Clair is having her very first live television special. So set in the seventies and eighties back when people did these live television specials. And as the special goes on, she starts to lose her grip on reality and she starts to sort of, we're not sure if she's hallucinating or if these things are really happening, but that's what the film is about. Um, so I just knew that it would be such a tremendous challenge. And even though I was terrified, I was like, to say no to this would be the dumbest, but I mean, the dumbest thing of my life. So I said yes. And I dove in head first and it was gratifying beyond what I could have imagined. It I mean, is the night- so, I mean, I love, I'm a big 
nostalgic sort of like 70s, 80s. And I'm obsessed with television too, but particularly television specials. And television Mm -hmm. specials like the B. Arthur special or the Goldie Hawn special. I mean, there were just so many crazy, wonderful fever dream of specials that happened. Liza Minnelli and Goldie Hawn together. And that they're dancing and like, I mean, on like CBS, like what is happening? And it's, and this film for anyone who is listening, who loves that kind of vibe, you have to check this out because it is kind of, it gives you that vibe and the clothes and the style of it. And everything is just like you're in a CBS studio in 1978 and you don't know if the lights are going to set the place on fire or not, but you don't want to leave because you want to see how this ends. You know, It's, it's kind of that vibe. It's really wild. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, to me, I think Amanda's script is funny and scary and sad. And it really is about fame and like what fame can do to a psyche and, you know, what our desire for fame does, which sort of connects us to the very beginning of this conversation of like, now that we can all be famous, Mm -hmm. you know, how are our, yeah, you know, how's our mental health going to be? But Yes, the aesthetics in that film, the hair, the makeup, the costumes, the lighting were incredible and just pushed it like whoa, way far over. And actually, we were trying to do it as a live show, which is oh, pretty. That's what I was thinking. I was going to ask that because it does feel very much like a live show. It feels like something that you could do as a one person sort of show. It would be incredible live. Yeah, that's oh. our hope is to do it. And I think it would be such a cool challenge. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm excited. We've been, we're in we're in talks. I hope that happens. I hope that happens. Um, so, you. well, another thing that I have to ask you about fame, and, and you, you and I texted about this before, but like it is kind of, you have this experience where you're a young actor, you're out here, you're doing independent films, you're doing all things, you're making a name for yourself, and you've been in a lot of Ryan Murphy stuff, you've done a lot of other things, like you've done, you know, lots of projects, but you also do have, as a young actor, which is unique to you, the weight of having very famous parents. I mean, like I watch Give Me Pity, and, and you also have the curse of looking exactly like your famous mom. So I watch Give Me Pity, and I have this vibe of like, I'm thinking of all these wonderful Bette Midler outfits that I love. So I want to know, like, How do you, as an actor, as a creative, as a professional, sort of navigate through carving your own path while also continually getting asked about the the megastars that are your family and your parents, you know? You mean sort of like you're doing right now? I know, I know, I know. And and that's why we had to text about it before, because I wanted to be respectful. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, I'm joking. You know, with Give Me Pity, it was really interesting, because that was actually part of what really frightened me about the script, was like, oh, this is a... The character is an entertainer, and she's an entertainer who sings and dances, which my mom has historically done. And so I was so scared of like, oh, that people would watch this as me somehow trying to embody that spirit. And so it was very important to me that Sissy St. Clair as a character be as very as far removed from my mother as possible. Yes, our faces look similar, but like Sissy is, you know, she's really if you guys watch the film, you'll see she's really kind of obsessed with this femininity. She sort of speaks in a very different way with a very different cadence. Somebody just turned all the lights off in here. Sorry, I don't know if that registered for you. No. (laughs) Um, Speaks with a different cadence. She carries herself differently. So even certain lines in the script that Amanda had written that had a little bit more bombast in them, I asked for her to maybe not include those, like because I wanted her to really be this out-of-touch actor who's so terrified of losing fame which i think is very different from who my mom is and how she's carried herself in her specials and her work yeah so i think for me the way that i think about it is simply like 
I think of myself as a character actor. And what I want to do when I'm acting is to channel someone who is different from myself. Yes, I use myself in order to find that. But I want to be people who walk, talk, think differently. And so that feels like a very different thing, actually. It just, it makes room for being an actor as opposed to just Sophie von Hasselberg playing this part. Yeah. And therefore, I don't feel like my mom is as much a part of the conversation with with what I do for, sorry, my mom's not as much of a conversation, part of the conversation, sorry, <laughs> wow, my brain is going in so many directions. She's not a much a part of the conversation because I'm not just, I'm, I don't know, I'm not just being myself on camera. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No, I don't it know. Does. I like no, it does. No right now. Because I mean... Um, I- I think yeah, I think you're exactly right, and that's what that was. That's what comes through in your work. And I mean, I think you know one of the reasons why I like you as an actress is that you are doing your own thing. It's not, I'm not seeing Sophie. I'm you're lo- I'm losing you. Whereas so much of the respect that I think a lot of fans of your mother have for her is because of her live show and her personality and how what she puts her spin on things. I mean, that's why we love her. And so you're doing exactly. different things. Right, right. And I think that was very important for me and also has been like whenever when when I grew up being attracted to being an actor, I was really attracted to the idea of being a character, of of embodying a character, not to the idea of just performing. Yeah. And so I do think it's actually two kind of different things, which is not to say I mean my mom has done incredible character oh, work. Incredible. Like me from focus. I mean crazy, right? The rose. But, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I think it feels I feel that because of that, I'm able to sort of chart my own course and and hoe my own road. (laughs) Well, my last question for you, and this is from what we talked a little bit about the other night, has nothing to do with film, acting, television, anything. But we talked a lot about marmalade. And um, I I need to know, are you a foodie? And um, can we be foodie foodie best best friends? I need to know that. I'm not just a foodie. I had a podcast for three years that was dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed. I am all about eating, (laughs) drinking, cooking, hosting. It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. So the marmalade story is I'm married to an Englishman who has floppy hair, sort of like Hugh Grant, okay? <laughs> um, and a really weird accent. Um, I'm kind of terrified that, like, at some point I'll be cast as a as a Brit and and he'll just be like, oh, my God, so direct. <laughs> you know, but I do have a built-in, I built-in accent coach, which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, live in, rather. So he started making marmalade many years ago. Yeah. And when we got together, I was like, well, I love to cook. Let's make marmalade together. And now we're so into it that we submit our marmalades to the Dale Main Marmalade Awards, which are up in Lake District in the UK. I won a silver as a first timer last wow. year. It was very, <laughs> it's a really moving moment for me. And I started crying. Um, <laughs> he's actually in the UK. Oh, I just lost you for a second. He's actually in the UK right now, dropping off our marmalade for this wow. year's award. So, Wow. Yeah, we also make hard cider. That's oh. um, another big endeavor that we've started in the last few years. That's incredible. Yeah. Would you ever like market these things? You know, somebody the other day was like, well, I'm ready to set up your Shopify whenever you want. But I, I don't think we're making enough to actually sell. It's like but we would literally be charging $200 a jar of marmalade if we started selling it. You know, this stuff is at a premium. Um, no, it's really just for us and friends. But we do whenever we go over to somebody's house, we'll bring a bottle of cider or marmalade. So like our, our friends do get to try it. So you can try some. Someday. I cannot wait. Oh, my God. And I also learned I did not know this, that marmalade to be marmalade, it has to have a citrus component to it correct 
Yes, wow. a jam, like marmalade is not jam. Yeah. Marmalade has to have citrus in it, but like you can you can play around with what kind of citrus you oh, can go, you know, you can go citrus with booze, citrus with other fruits, citrus with, you know, whatever. That's wild to me. I had I did I it, as a foodie, I definitely was blown away that it has to be citrus based. I never knew that about marmalade. So, that's my that's the fun fact that I'm the I love when a friendship starts where I can have a weird fun fact that then I can use in every other conversation for like the next few weeks, which I have done yeah. twice since I have seen yeah, you the other night. Totally disdainful to anyone yeah. who doesn't know that marmalade is obviously citrus based. <laughs> And act like I'm all oh, you didn't know. <laughs> and then you act like you always knew. Always knew. Exactly. Except for the real friends, you're like, actually, I learned it the other day. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> well, Sophie, this was so much fun. Where can people, I mean, it's out now. They can rent it. They can stream it. They can do all the things. But, like, where can people see Love Reconsidered? You can see it on Amazon, iTunes, slash Apple, Vudu, YouTube. Um, and I believe we are also going to have a limited release in New York City, which would be great. So come see it in theaters. You know, it's so fun to see anything in the big screen. I'm also like really just trying to bring back the theater. Like I go to my husband and I, we go to see movies like at least once or same, twice a week. Same. It's the best thing. It's the best. I mean, I love one of the things that my boyfriend and I constantly love to do. I mean, I, of course, you know, I work in talking about movies and TV and stuff, but like one of the things that my boyfriend and I love to do is we love having a movie theater dinner night where it's just movie theater food dinner and we just go see a movie and we just have horrible, I mean like hot dogs and stuff, but it's still just sort of like we're at the movies. <laughs> Yes. Well, I get very, I mean, I get really crazy. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to see Dune, like I try to, you know, kind of curate my whole afternoon around all that I'm seeing and like really just turn it into an event because it's it's a, you know, it's a little two and a half hour long celebration of just of of movies in Hollywood and like stuff I love. Yeah, I mean, Greta Gerwig was just recently saying, which I love, and she got it from someone else, but I forget who she referenced, but that the best times to see a movie are 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. That way, you can have, like, you can have lunch or dinner afterwards and then just discuss the film you just saw. It's just, I think it's genius. Well, it is, and I hate going to see something. I mean, this is the problem with going to see, you know, live theater at 8 p.m. Yeah. Is it's like, then you've seen it, and then you all you have is the subway ride home with your friend to kind yeah. of, like, quickly dish on what you just saw. Yeah. And but I think that the 10 or the 4 p.m. showing. That's, you're that that's person good. who's overdressed on the subway with a playbill in your hand, and every just everyone just knows your story that night. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like the one time on the subway you can't be anonymous. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and yeah, you rolled up that playbill. You're just holding it, waving it's it all just, around. They know yeah. you got money. They know you saw a four hundred dollar show. <laughs> like they know all the things. Yeah, uh, I got comps. Okay, I got comps. Yeah, God. I'm connected. Oh, <laughs> uh, Sophie, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Now for what to watch this weekend, besides the Super Bowl and Love Reconsidered. Max's crime thriller Tokyo Vice is back in its second season, which it's great and it's a fun show. You should go check it out. Remember Leah Woodall in the second season of The White Lotus, especially that one scene? If you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Well, he's got a new series on Netflix called One Day that's worth checking out. Also, are you watching True Detective? Because I'm obsessed. Jodie Foster is so good in it. And guess what? I will be talking with her very soon on the podcast. It's the second time I've spoken with Jodie and we're basically friends now, I guess. I mean, you know, I can't text her or anything, but... I'm sure she remembers me. She, yeah. And then, of course, there's the traitors on Peacock, which I cannot get enough of. Now, I will be talking with many members of the cast of of the traitors and the winner 
in the coming weeks. Finally, they announced the new cast of Survivor. The new season, Survivor 46, starts February 28th, and you better bet I will be recapping that season as well. So stick with Newsweek for that. Now, for what's pissing me off this week. As you probably could tell by some of the things I've said on today's episode, especially at the beginning of this podcast, I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. I'm certainly not a Swifty. But the way people are coming for her on Twitter, I'm calling it Twitter because I refuse to call it X, and and her politics is just kind of wild. I mean, there are some crazy conspiracy theories going on about Taylor Swift right now, especially coming from some corners of the conservative right sort of alt conspiracy areas. I saw one post that went viral that was like, Notice anything suspicious about her shoes? They're red on the bottom. Clearly, she's pushing a satanic vibe or something. I don't know. They were basically referring the red bottoms of her shoes to Satan, which is insane. It's like, nah, dude, those are just expensive shoes. That's how those shoes come. Have you not watched Sex in the City? I know they haven't watched Sex in the City. And you know what? They probably would have better lives if they would just watch a few episodes of Sex in the City. Lose yourself just walk up to a shoe and say hello lover or whatever she says like calm down everyone they're just shoes so dumb anyway thanks for listening to the parting shot now watch something fun this weekend perhaps love reconsidered or eat the super bowl you know survive the super bowl party i I gave you those suggestions but regardless watch something fun and have a great day